Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm very happy to be here and talking with you. We're going to do a few follow-ups from last week's show, which, if you missed it, was all about oral hygiene and the oral microbiome. Yeah, you know, your, even your eyeballs have a microbiome. It's like they're everywhere. <laughs> we really are a planet. But one of the things that I haven't covered in a long time is toothpaste. So this was a post at Family Dentistry, uh, tree, T-R-E-E dot com. And it was a very nice little scientific experiment that this person did and published. And I always like to see, well, you know, home science projects. So the American Dental Association has created this range of abrasiveness because if your toothpaste is too abrasive, which is often the case, uh, you can have actually damage your enamel and lead to disease. So they've broken it down into low abrasive, to regard it as harmful into four stages. Enamel isn't really susceptible to abrasion, but the underlying structures like dentin and the root surfaces, which when you start to get gum recession, right, and we talked about that last week, uh, that's really much softer. And so the you can actually really damage your teeth, uh, and particularly the whitening tooth uh, toothpastes are going to be a problem. So just to, there's a lovely table and I'll post a link to the website on the, uh, at the askdrdawn.com website. So let's talk about these toothpastes and the lowest one is toothbrush with plain water and plain baking soda is actually a very low abrasive compound. And then you get into, uh, and those are all in the single digits, Arm & Hammer Tooth Powder as well, which is probably mostly baking soda with a brand name on it. Uh, but then you get into toothpastes, and uh, the the low abrasive is up to 70. And there's a lot of them. Uh, you want to look for the word sensitive. And there's only one whitening toothpaste, uh, actually two, and they're both made by Arm & Hammer, that are not super abrasive. Your lowest abrasive whitening toothpaste is made by Arm & Hammer. It's called Sensitive Plus Whitening. And it, they, the ones when you get into whitening, you get into really high abrasives. And so Total Advanced Fresh, Pro Health Whitening, Tartar Control, uh, you're really starting to... Get, and some of these are natural ones. Nature's Gate is uh, up there. So... Anytime you see the word tartar control, you're really probably, or extra whitening, you're probably getting into the higher levels, and you probably want to not do that. Uh, if you really want white teeth, you can use a bleach. I'm not advocating for that, but uh, that's probably better than the toothpaste. So moving on to how to test toothpastes. This uh, person who set up the article did a nice little science project where she made a little square of tin foil, aluminum foil, shiny side up, and 
you wrap a small amount, like a pea-sided amount of the toothpaste on it using light pressure and just in circles, rub it on, you know, for a minute. And then uh, you're not trying to really scrub, you're trying to get equivalent to the sort of pressure you might make with your toothbrush. And of course, the stiffness of your toothbrush is also a factor. Uh, rinse the toothpaste off under foil and look to see if there's any scratches on the surface of the foil. You don't want to see toothpaste scratches from your fingertip because if you can do that with your fingertip, you can probably do it with your toothbrush. There's a lot of variation. She posts a very nice little thing, and I want to just give a shout out to, let's see, this was posted um, by Kimberly. And I just want to say, Kimberly, thank you for demonstrating science at home uh, and also a helpful hint for my family. Uh, That's my big, broader radio family. That's you. So the other thing... uh, I wanted to follow up on from last week's show was I got back my oral DNA lab test, which shows me what my oral microbiome is. Uh, The company is My Perioath, P-E-R-I-O, Path, P-A-T-H, and they have a website. I, interestingly enough, I got this at the Functional Medicine Conference, found it a wonderful conference, more about that in later programs. And I was very relieved to see that I don't have any of the high-risk pathogens, but I did see that I have some moderate-risk pathogens floating around in there. So I'm going to uh, start doing oil pulling, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this. This uh, I want to stop before I continue and say last week I promised you I would be talking about phage therapy and cystic fibrosis and I will come back and do that program sometime in the next few uh, months. I'll probably record it and use it when I'm away in July at uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians Conference where I'm going to be help trying to recruit medical students uh, to come to our family practice residency. So excited in uh, June of 2024, we will have our first eight family medicine residents coming to Santa Cruz. If you know someone in medical school who might like to become a family physician and learn how from us, including me, I would love for them to uh, give us a shout out and look at the website and maybe consider coming for a rotation. So let's crowdsource this puppy with people who want to be here and people who are interested in all of medicine, just uh, not just the narrow channel, but the broad channel. And on that theme, let's go to our first email. We had a lot of emails, and that's part of the reason why I postponed the cystic fibrosis, because we had such uh, we had such great suggestions, and I um, wanted to start with. Uh, let's see. A email from a member of the staff here at KSQD who wishes to remain anonymous, which is just fine. Dear Dr. Don, I am one of the folks who do have gingivitis. I'm getting it treated uh, with prescribed gum trays and gel-based toothpaste and rinse. All of them have fluoride and hydrogen peroxide, 0.2%, and alcohol. For a while, my mother, pushing her mid-60s, 
uh, swears by oil pulling with coconut oil. I've experienced good things like uh, stalling early cavities, but I struggle with consistency. So I ultimately have ended up with cavities and gingivitis. I'm wondering if you're aware of research backing up oil pulling's benefit for gum and tooth health. I have added it to my two twice a day mouth routine. Um, I like that it doesn't leave my mouth tasting of fluoride. So before I go any further, uh, I want to say uh, that any young woman who is using a fluoride toothpaste should also be taking iodine. And people who are eating commercial bread regularly uh, or bread that's made with non-caking flour, which is most bread nowadays, it'll have bromine in it. And both fluoride and bromine bind to the thyroid, among other things, and they block the sites where the thyroid gland takes up iodine. So that's not a good thing because you aren't your thyroid isn't functioning as uh, efficiently and it's more vulnerable when it doesn't have good, adequate iodine stores. The second thing is your breasts are the second most uh, important gland for absorbing iodine. And there are uh, many, many iodine receptors in the body, but most of them are located in either the thyroid or the breast. And in the breast, iodine is an anti-growth modulator. There's research going back to the 70s about using iodine for fibrocystic breasts, tender breasts, uh, uh, the, the fibroadenomas, you know, breasts that are essentially growing things. And we are, of course, worried about breast cancer as we get older, but breast cancer is occurring in younger and younger women. So ironically, uh, before we go into uh, oil pulling, I just want to throw out that fluoride, that should be making you get some iodine. So now on to oil pulling, which is an old technique that that dates very, very far back. It's uh, considered part of Ayurvedic medicine, and it has it shows up in ancient texts in uh, the health as the health end of the religious Vedas talks about how to stay healthy, and oil pulling is a general detox. But oil also is somewhat bacteriotoxic. So typically, traditionally, lots of different oils are used, but a tablespoon of oil in an adult and maybe a teaspoon in a kid, uh, sesame oil, is given in the mouth, and you just kind of suck on it, uh, pull it around, pull it between your teeth, swish it back and forth in your mouth, and you hold it in your mouth for 10 minutes. And the oil gets thinner and turns milky white and... When, when it has this sort of phase change, it's absorbed enough stuff. So after the 10-minute timer goes off, you spit it out. You don't swallow it. And down the drain goes a lot of bacteria and also a lot of oil-soluble toxins because in that 10 minutes, you've pumped a fair amount of blood through those cheeks. And the oils that uh, the oils actually do diffuse into the oil and get held there. So you can, particularly if you're around a lot of plastics or a lot of stuff that is oil-soluble, this can and has been shown to remove, to, to remove some of it from your bloodstream because you can run the spit through a mass spectrometer and show that you've done that. 
So a couple of scientific studies. This first one I'm going to talk about, they used, these were 40 subjects with moderate plaque and gingivitis. And half of them were told to continue their normal dental hygiene measures, and half of them uh, were give, give, told to do oil pulling and educated in how to do that. And they saw at the end of 45 days a statistically significant decrease in plaque, uh, gum gingival scores, and the number of bacteria in the mouth. So that article, you know, the thing about science is that people cite articles. So that article came out in 2013. So then I looked and saw, well, who cited that article? A whole lot of people. But I came across this really juicy article, pardon the pun, on the juicy bit. But this article, comparing the effect of coconut oil pulling practice with oil pulling using sesame oils and plaque-induced gingivitis, a prospective comparative interventional study. I love those words, perspective, like we weren't looking back and saying, okay, people who have this disease and people who don't have this disease, we were actually taking people who all had the disease and going forward with one intervention, one variation, and then checking on them and see whether you could show a difference in the course of the disease. This is not a placebo-controlled trial because they didn't have somebody doing placebo oil They just had usual practice. Fine. I'm not worried about the placebo effect with bacteria growing on the teeth. I'm not, I don't think there's a placebo to be worried about there. So you had 20 uh, groups who were using coconut oil, uh, 20 who were using sesame oil, and 20 who were doing regular routine brushing. They also, in this study, uh, made sure that they taught everybody how to do the regular routine brushing so that people had all had the same technique education. And they were very careful to balance for age and sex. Thank you very much. This had, you know, the same number of women and the same number of men in each group so that they were truly comparable. And this, they were told to go at least 10 minutes with their oil pulling and then spit. Now, one of the reasons they used coconut oil is that coconut oil is structurally really different from sesame oil. And that has to do with the length of the chains. Coconut oil has medium-chain fatty acids and lo- as opposed to long-chain fatty acids. And that structural difference is, makes for a difference in its physical properties. It's uh, easier to swish. And the other thing about coconut oil is it contains high levels of lauric acid, which is a saturated fatty acid that has known antimicrobial effects and known anti-inflammatory effects. That's why you'll sometimes see people saying, you know, there's good saturated fat and bad saturated fat, and coconut oil is a quote-unquote healthy fat because of some of the properties of some of the, the fat in coconut oil. Coconut oil also has the virtue of not requiring as many enzymes to absorb. So when people are older and you have to put them on, let's say you go put them on a ketogenic diet uh, because they're fighting cancer, then you might also want to use a lot of coconut oil because it's easier for the system. So by day seven, they'd already started to see a divergence in these three groups. They used very well, 
observed technical measurements, and the coconut oil was doing much better than the sesame and the control group. So then on day 14, the sesame and uh, started to pull ahead. They, now it was different from the control. And the coconut oil group pulled further ahead, still more in the sesame group. And we had a long conversation with uh, about mouthwash with several callers last week because I, I kind of committed the heresy of saying, you know, don't, you know, I don't think mouthwash is a good idea because it's hard on the microbiome and you are going to swallow some of it even if you spit it out. People like that mouth feel afterwards and I'm like, yeah, use a drop of binaca or some kind of breath freshener, but maybe not a mouthwash because of that effect. The chemical, uh, the use of coconut oil gets you to the same place. There's another study which I did not save, about chlorhexidine, which is when you get that prescription mouthwash for gingivitis. That's what's in it. It's chlorhexidine. And it showed that coconut oil and chlorhexidine are therapeutically equivalent in terms of their effect on gingivitis. So now I bring you a solution to the mouthwash conundrum and also an answer to uh, an interesting question. So I hope you found that helpful. Now we're continued to another email. I said we had a lot. This one's interesting. Uh, Dr. Motika, my granddaughter had testing done on a mole that was removed from her skin, and it came back that she has the MUTYH mutation of a gene associated with an increased risk of colon cancer. My daughter uh, checked with her mother, who was tested for this gene mutation, and found that the mother does not have it, but my daughter does which, of course, implicates me. My daughter is demanding that I get checked out for this mutation. Although I have regular colonoscopies, I've not had testing done for this mutation. Should I be tested? And if so, how would I go about it? Well, uh, your granddaughter is worried about the MUTYH-associated polyposis. It's sometimes referred to as MAP. And people who have this uh, tend to develop, if they have two copies, they tend to develop multiple polyps in their colon. And we're talking about from two to a hundred. The more polyps you have, the more lottery tickets in one of those polyps turning cancerous. And when the polyps grow rapidly and there's a mutation, those, those odds are substantial. And so individuals have to have annual colonoscopies if they have this condition. People with a single copy of this mutation have a very low risk. So it takes two to tango with DNA, all right? Risks for people with a single MUTHY mutation are very low. So if your daughter's mother is negative, uh, you've either got one or two copies of that gene. And I'm a little skeptical about the technology, honestly, of checking a skin mole for the mutation they're saying you have a mutation in a gene. Gene could be 50 or 100 or 300 base pairs long. And where's the mutation? Is it the same mutation? Does it have the same loss of function or the same setting? It's like saying it, it, there's just too many controls and too many possibilities of a neutral mutation that isn't meaningful. Plus, 
the mutation in her mole could be a local mutation. She may have tested positive. Her mole may test positive, but I'd love to have her, before you get, get too excited, if she's check her saliva and do a saliva test to have that DNA run and see if the mutation is in fact present in all of her body cells because the mole could just have the mutation. And that's very true of cancers. That's been the problem with trying to genetically use use genetics to predict cancer or treat cancer is because the cancers don't have the same genetics as the person with the cancer. Uh, By the time you have the cancer, the genetics have already shifted. And within a single tumor, you will have genetic drift, if you will, and multiple different genetic profiles in that tumor, which makes it extremely difficult to target all of the cells in the tumor with a single biological agent, because you got to catch all the mutations, and some of them will have mutated resistance to whatever you're using to target them. And people with one copy of the mutation, which I think it's evident that you do have one copy because you don't have a whole bunch of polyps and you've done the colonoscopies, so you know that, Uh, People with a single mutation may only have a slightly elevated risk above that of the general population. And in statistical studies, only if they have a relative who had colon cancer at all, do they have that slightly elevated risk. There's a lot more to colon cancer than this gene. Um, So you almost certainly have one good copy. So first of all, what you need to do. I don't think you need to get tested. I think we can infer this. I think you should apologize to your daughter for giving her a bad gene and make sure that she and her daughter screen prospective fathers. This is probably more important for the granddaughter uh, because if they've got a, if they do have a bad copy of this gene, they don't want to, they don't want to breed with someone who does have a bad copy of this gene. So you might, it might be worth going to for genetic counseling when she finds her life partner and, uh, check that and look for that. Uh, Sickle cell, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis, Tysex. There's about a thousand other nasties that require two copies that are bad to be a disease. And the reason that these diseases stick around in the gene pool and don't die out is because they usually confer a survival benefit with one copy. So for example, cystic fibrosis is a gene that we're going to be talking about, Uh, one copy of that helps you resist the plague. And that, you know, the bubonic plague. So people who have ancestors that have lived in in Europe for a long time and in India, you'll see that gene. You mostly see it in Caucasians uh, in this country. But it helps you resist the plague. There, it, the people who survive the plague are more likely to have one copy, uh, so it persists in the population for probably a couple thousand years and then eventually works its way out. Sickle cell anemia, one copy, helps you resist m- malaria. And sickle cell is more prominent in people who come from malaria, who, whose ancestors at least lived in malaria-prevalent areas. And the MUTYH probably has a reason to persist in the gene pool that we haven't uh, discovered it. By the way, these mutations have a frequency of 1% to 2% in the general population. So 
like the MT, uh, that's a little lower than the MTHFR mutation that I'm always talking about that can be gotten around with just taking methylated folate. Uh, this particular gene has lots of implications as well and probably also has some benefits that nobody has been able to figure out. I started a file, uh, and I think I'll tell you, a sur- it's called Surreal Moments in Medicine, and I think I'll tell you about a most amazing journey I've been having over the last few, several days, and it, it ended with a happy ending. It's involved a patient needing an asthma inhaler that contained a steroid. Uh, we had actually asked for a generic version of that, and it is an amazing story. Uh, the, the audience should be aware that there is an absurd Byzantine labyrinth that doctors need to negotiate when they order a medication for a patient. The, farm, the drug plans jealously guard their formularies. They're required by law to reveal their formularies, but they don't make it easy. And in fact, you can't get, I cannot get information about what drugs I can use. If I call, if I try to go online or say, all right, this person has Humana insurance. So what, uh, what does Humana cover in the way of inhaled steroids with long-acting bronchodilators? By the way, just before I launch into the story, the standard of care of medicine is to use this for COPD and asthma, chronic asthma. It is in the board exam. If I don't know that I'm supposed to do that, I can and should fail the medical boards because that's the standard of care and it's been arrived at scientifically. And there should not be a question. Now, in Israel, these cost 10 bucks. In Canada, they cost about 35 bucks, And in the United States, if you try to buy one uh, with a coupon, it's about $130. And this is, a, this is something that a person goes through in a month. And, this is, and these are patients who are paying for drug coverage. But, uh, quoting a pharmacist for Humana, there are no inhaled steroids that are on our formulary. Now, quoting the woman that I reached at 844-750-1055, and by the way, this has gone through three different pharmacies by this time, and they've all said, oh, you have to do a PA, but none of them have given me a PA or initiated it or made it at all easy for me to start the process to get it done, so eventually I resorted to the telephone, and uh, that patient, that person said, all right, well, let's get started. And uh, have they failed the formulary medicine was the first question that she asked. And I said, well, I don't know. What is the formulary medicine? And she said, uh, Simbicort. And I said, well, gee, Simbicort would be just fine. I'll be happy to prescribe that for my patient. But since I've got you on the phone, uh, how am I supposed to find that out? Because... And she tried to walk me through the website because she actually thought I could, because that's what she's been told by her corporate masters. 
So I made, so she stayed on the phone, very gracious of her, and we went to the website. And the amount of information I would need to have uh, included the you know plan number for the patient's Medicare Part D card, which, by the way, as the physician, I don't necessarily keep track of that because I, you know, I I have a lot to keep track of, and it seems to me that you have your bent, you have your plans, you have your plans. I don't have I don't have a place. Medical records aren't set up to store that information. Uh, so that's pretty crazy that I'm expected to have it. But anyway, so we so I tried to go through it with her. Could not get a list of drugs. Have to enter in the drug in, that that you want to have, and then uh, then they'll tell you whether or not it's covered by their drug plan. And then I said, "Is there any other way? Is there a phone number that I can call?" And she's like, "Oh yes, there's a phone number." Eight hundred five 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 two four four six. Well, I called that number three times just to see what would happen, and I am really lucky because on the first call, I got a congratulations. You have received a hundred dollar free gift certificate with Walmart. Please press one to collect your gift. I didn't. I waited. There was no other option, no click through, no way to get to an actual person who would tell me what the drug was. Uh, instead, it hung up on me when I didn't click one. So I called back. This time I got a different voice telling me that I had a $100 gift certificate for somewhere else. And pretty much the same thing, but a different voice. And I'm like, okay, did the woman who gave me this number think that was true? It isn't true. It's obviously they're just, you know, sending me off to somebody who's paying the money for the hooks that they get for the people who enter their personal data. And this is Humana, all right? This is a major health insurance company. So I don't know the particulars, but I'm going to make an appeal to you. This is drugs. It's not just drugs. This is for a lot of procedures, a lot of medical procedures. And the primary care doctor ends up stuck without compensation, spending hours of time on the phone, trying to get things that their patients really need quickly. And we need to stop this. We're hemorrhaging doctors. People are retiring early. COVID really burnt everyone out. And now the insurance companies have just doubled down on putting these barriers to necessary care. And it's absurd. It's a labyrinth. This It should be illegal. And they're obviously doing crazy stuff and getting away with it. So there is a law that's working its way through the California legislature. My, the, the assembly and, you know, please just write to your congressman and write to your representative and tell them you want them to support restrictions on prior authorizations. This is something that Gavin Newsom has promised. It's We need to make this a front burner issue because if you're interested in there being a doctor and a nurse where, you know, around when you need one, you'd better preserve this resource because I, I see colleagues voting with their feet and leaving the field all over the place right now, going somewhere else or just, you know, picking up their marbles and going home. Uh, you know, literally picking up their marbles before they lose them, because this stuff is truly nuts. All right. I am exiting my uh, soapbox and we'll move on 
to another email. This one from Bob in Santa Cruz. Uh, Thyroid questions. Dr. Don, I have several thyroid-related questions. About 25 years ago, my thyroid became swollen and tender and then quit working. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I've been taking levothyroxine or Synthroid daily ever since. Recently, I've been reading that people who are hypothyroid should avoid goiterogenic foods, such as cruciferous vegetables. But is this relevant if you don't have a working thyroid? Do goiterogenic foods interfere with the absorption of levothyroxine? And I'll stop there and answer those two questions before I ask Bob's last question. So first of all, goiterogens are foods that, like cabbage, right? That's a goiterogen. Uh, if you are feeding that to animals as their main fodder, they develop goiters. That's how this was discovered back a hundred years ago or so. But these animals, of course, are not taking levothyroxine. And what's going on is that goiterogenic foods interfere with the absorption of iodine. So if you don't get enough iodine, you will develop swelling of your thyroid, which is a goiter. Thyroids which swell and are goiters don't necessarily stop working. They just get bigger. It's kind of a, it's kind of like a muscle hypertrophy. It's a glandular overgrowth in response to trying to produce enough thyroid hormone to keep the system going. But you are not going to have a problem if you're taking preformed levothyroxine. Uh, so are you aware of any natural alternatives to levothyroxine or of any naturopathic methods for restoring a non-functional thyroid gland to a functioning state? Well, there's lots of uh, natural na- uh, methods. Uh, there's natural thyro- uh, thyroid uh, compounds like armor thyroid and uh, many others that are extracts from animal glands. And they are purified, and they don't contain, you know, anything dangerous. But uh, they are a little bit variable in their absorption. So levothyroxine is pushed to our, our us doctors as having more p- p- consistent absorption. And uh, the th- reason I like to use the natural thyroids is that they come with a little bit of activated thyroid. So they tend to work a bit faster. And some people, particularly people under high stress or who have adrenal uh, function issues, don't convert their levothyroxine into activated thyroid. So they are the people who go to the doctor and they get put on levothyroxine and their TSH is normal. And they still feel like crap. They're still tired. They're still constipated. They're still drowsy and not thinking straight and there's and they're like well that didn't help me and the reason is you're giving a pre-drug when you give levothyroxine and if you can't convert that pre-drug well then it's not going to work so are there natu- are there methods for restoring a non-functional gland and alas not if it's totally burnt out and 25 years after uh, about a Hashimoto's, if that's in fact what you had, the uh, it's it's too late for that gland. Early in the process, it and it is a process. You it's an autoimmune process. You start making antibodies against your thyroid, and 
Sometimes those antibodies are actually generated because you're sensitive to gluten. So celiac people have very, very high rates of Hashimoto's uh, because they, but they have the attack on their thyroid coming from the attack on their gut. Uh, there are gluten-like compounds found in the thyroid. And so there's a case of mistaken identity and the thyroid gets attacked and then you start making antibodies to broken up bits of thyroid, and that's what TPO is. So that is kind of a secondary thing. You're autoimmunizing yourself against the thyroid with gluten, and that is a thing. So early in Hashimoto's, if you can shut off the autoimmune reaction, you can preserve and restore thyroid function. And that involves a lot of work. You've got to go totally gluten-free. You've got to use uh, you've got to get your microbiome in really good shape. You've got to load up on the vitamin D, uh, selenium uh, to help with the conversion, and glandular extracts, which which are essentially the leftovers after they make the uh, the armor thyroid. They've got leftover thyroid gland without thyroid hormone in it, and those glandular extracts help the gland heal. This is very old, very naturopathic medicine, and uh, you have to get lucky. Is basically what I would say about it. So in double-blind placebo controls, it's going to fail. You have to get to it early. They're not going to be, they're not going to choose the right group to test in any kind of study, and nobody's going to fund this. So uh, it's lore. It's not science. There's case studies, which just to say, you show that someone's got autoimmune thyroid disease in a TPO level, you do all the things, and their TPO drops, and their thyroid recovers, but that's a one-off, right? And maybe they were going to recover anyway, and it's not good science. I would criticize that as not sufficient evidence. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's really hard to prove with the rigor and discipline that medical science demands. Sometimes it works, though. (laughs) So what are you going to do? Let's go to our next email. This from Bruce and Diana in Seaside. They write, garden vegetables versus store vegetables. Dear Dr. Don, you are the only one we trust to give knowledgeable and correct answer. Our situation is that we've been growing vegetables in a little garden. We've had successes and failures. I can sympathize, Bruce and Diana. I've... uh, Yeah, I've had some really epic failures and some really great successes. But one thing stands out. Homegrown vegetables taste different. They taste really good. By comparison, store-bought vegetables are bland. Uh, Our question is whether these homegrown vegetables are healthier for us. Well, I first want to start with the, you know, the heirloom tomato saga, because when Heirloom tomatoes first started out about 10 years ago when did some of the farmer's markets. They, they, they started showing up, these things called heirloom tomatoes. And they tasted like tomatoes that had come out of someone's garden. They really did. They had that full-bodied taste with all the nuance. And then I started noticing that all the supermarkets, now I can go to Rayleigh's and, and buy uh, at a premium price heirloom tomatoes, and they're bland. They're really not much better, if at all, than the regular sort of, um, oh, what should we call them, the clone tomatoes. Part of that's 
the de- the market demand of transporting tomatoes. I mean, you see these trucks full of tomatoes. Those tomatoes are going to be really hard and uh, not soft and night ripe. And they don't they do much better when they ripen on the vine. So part of the taste is just technique. Part of it's genetics. Uh, whether they're healthier for you. Well, first of all, the things that are healthy besides the fiber are the bioflavonoids. And that taste change that you're that you're picking up, that represents the bioflavonoids being different. You have different ones, higher levels of some. And just like the French get really into terroir, you know, and what side of the hill you grow your Cabernet Sauvignon on is going to make a difference in how the wine tastes. And, you know, you have Appellation Controle, you know, this is from, you know, this square three miles in some, you know, in the Pyrenees, and that is the only place that can call the wine that. And it does taste different if you're really an expert. So there's there's soil health, there's subtleties to the mineral content of the soil, the sun, organic versus chemical. But the bottom line is that taste means you have more bioflavonoids. The bioflavonoids are the secret sauce that make... Uh, make food healthy, particularly vegetables, and they evaporate. So the content drops uh, when you pick them and then they sit in a refrigerated area and are brought out. They're evaporating. Uh, they're evaporating the good stuff. So if, if you, you know, we, we've looked at this scientifically with frozen versus old fresh, which is what I call the stuff I buy at the supermarket. It's fresh, but it's old fresh rather than new fresh, and canned. So from a technical standpoint, things that are picked and frozen immediately, and usually with flash flash freezing, this technical, you know, industrial freezing process, those have a lot, a good preservation of most of the bioflavonoids. I, I wish there was a way to do that for the stuff I grow in my garden, because I end up with, you know, feast or famine when it comes to the tomatoes. Uh, old fresh is better than canned, but uh, and canned, of course, you run into the problem with the, can, the with the bisphosphonates that are lining the can, and there's still yeah BPA is out of a lot of can linings, but there's BPB and there's all these other bisphosphonates in there, and they did a study on you know you eat one can of soup, and the can is lined with BPA, and then you look at the urine. And the urine levels of BPA go up a thousandfold uh, in about an hour after you eat that soup. Now, I'm glad it's leaving my body, but that to go up a thousandfold means that the blood level is pretty high there for a minute. And during the time that I have that high BPA blood level, it's hitting some of my insulin receptors. It's hitting my adrenal glands. It's, you know dancing with my cells in the receptor dance and sending signals that maybe I don't want to send. So I really try, I just, I'm very much against having my food in plastic. And uh, I'm, I've gotten my husband very, uh, I have to just give him a shout out because after talking to me about this some years ago, he started uh, pushing the people at Staff of Life. We don't know whether he was instrumental, but we do know that they moved to wrapping all their cheese in wax paper rather than stretch wrap. Stretch wrap is very high in BPA. 
and it's high in plasticizers, it's high in phthalates, you know, the stuff that they took out of the baby pacifiers because it was having a hormonal effect on the children. Yeah, it's important for us to keep the food clean. It looks like we've got a a caller. I'm going to keep going with this next email. This is Junior in Idaho. Uh, Junior writes, effectiveness of vitamin C and glutathione infusion. Hi, Dr. Don. Thank you for what you do. I was hoping if you could shed light on the effectivity of vitamin C and glutathione infusions. Are these effective? If so, how often should I have it? My holistic doctor recommends it based on the comprehensive lab results she ordered for me. The other thing I have is erectile dysfunction. I noticed this when I was in my 20s. Now I'm 37, and I see it's getting worse. Sildenafil and other meds only work the first take, and then that's it. Uh, Okay, I'm not quite sure how to parse that. Succeeding takes would not work. I did have open inguinal hernia repair in my college days. Reason why it was open is because my previous country docs did not have all this fancy medical equipment. Uh, Well, if you're 37, that fancy medical equipment was pretty thin on the ground. Uh, endoscopic uh, procedures are really recent. So what do you think? So let's start with uh, good for you. Uh, What's your goal? I don't know your lab results, but it's good. I'll tell you what it's good for. And then if that fits with you, then maybe you should be doing it. So first of all, vitamin C, everybody knows about vitamin C. We don't make it in our bodies. And so we have to get it from fruits and vegetables and hence scurvy if you don't get it. And so I think everybody knows about that much about vitamin C. There was this guy named Linus Pauling, a very important scientist. He got very into giving high doses of vitamin C. This is back in the 80s. Uh, and he was, of course, he, had, he was like kind of the Einstein of his generation. So it was a big deal when he started talking about high-dose vitamin C. And he started using it for cancer. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to the Linus Pauling Institute. If you just uh, put that in a search engine, you'll they'll take you right there. They have a lot of really good reviews of nutrients, and I've learned a lot from them. But essentially, when vitamin C is an antioxidant, but when you give a whole bunch of it, it causes an oxidative burst in your cells. And your normal cells are able to deal with that oxidative burst, but cancer cells aren't good at dealing with it. So it can kind of act not as a cure for cancer, but as a adjuvant augmenter for certain kinds of chemotherapy that depend on basically killing the cells with oxidative stress. The studies that used it intravenously at doses of like 10 to 15 grams were all positive. They were small. And late 80s, the Mayo Clinic did a major study uh, where they used high-dose oral vitamin C, which you can't tolerate. In fact, the naturopathic doctors give high-dose oral vitamin C to cause diarrhea, <laughs> to go to clean you out. It's called a vitamin C flush, and that's what it does. It flushes. But you can't get a high enough blood level to get the oxidative burst. So it failed. And every straight doctor I have ever talked to and every single oncologist I've ever talked to about this data says they cite the Mayo study. And I'm like, did you read the methods? Did you compare it to the actual methods that they were being promoted? Uh, And the answer is always, hey, 
you know, leave me alone, Motika, uh, in one way or another. <laughs> I rarely hear, I'd rather see it that overtly. But there's kind of the walk away slowly thing. So, yeah, that's life. Now, glutathione. Uh, glutathione is a phase two de- uh, detoxification agent. If you don't know what that means, go to my website, look in the archives, look for the detoxification talks. There's two hours of Detox 101. You'll walk away understanding about all those fruits and vegetables and why they're so important. But you're also, uh, but glutathione is super important in the mitochondria. It's super important for getting rid of drugs, alcohol, Tylenol are two of the agents that we consume fairly frequently in our society. Both of these use up glutathione. Heavy metals uh, take are taken out of the body by glutathione, but it gloms onto them and stays there. And so the glutathione exits the body. Now we're capable of making it. Uh, You can kick the levels up orally by taking N-acetylcysteine, which is a cofactor. And assuming you don't have a mutation in the glutathione production pathway, that will cause you to raise your levels. Giving it IV is a way to get very high levels. And in that can be great if your kidneys are in shape to get rid of the heavy metals, I don't know maybe why this was recommended to you, whether it's just for general wellness or whether you have a heavy metal problem and that's that came out in the tests. But you have to be careful that the body is able to get rid of the heavy metals. So you use this with a chelating agent. That might be really good uh, to make sure that your body can detox from the heavy metals. It will also help you get rid of many, many different um, environmental toxins. So if you've got an accumulation, maybe you occupationally were an exterminator or something like that, absolutely glutathione is going to get crap out of you that's stored in your body fat. So uh, I don't know why it was recommended. I don't use vitamin C infusions, except I don't recommend them. I don't do them myself uh, in my practice, but I would say if if you have an oxidative stress problem, it's a good idea to take a lot of vitamin C, uh, but you don't want to stop abruptly. That would pretty much cover it, I think. So we've got just a few minutes. I'm going to go ahead to that caller. And sorry to keep you waiting. Hello, give us your name and uh, where you're calling from. Hello, dear doctor. Eileen calling. I learned in a recent uh, consumer report about an incontinence product called Impressa, a vaginal device supposed to support a woman's bladder. And it's reusable, a reusable pottery worn in the vagina to reduce urinary leaks to not using the word stop incontinence and wondering what you knew about it. Well, um, I don't know of that, that particular mm. product, but I do know a lot about, I do know a lot about uh, pessaries. And mm. it sounds to me like this is just, a, this is old tech, very old tech. Mm. And what they're doing with their old, what they're doing is they're doing what people do, which is, you know, kind of file off the serial numbers and present it as something new. It's not mm. new. Uh, the trick with pessaries is fit. And there, it, that first of all, you don't want any sharp edges because you don't want to be puncturing, you don't want to be puncturing the bladder. You want something nice and round and donut shaped. Uh, some of them are shaped like for women who've had like six babies or seven babies mm. and they're all stretched out inside. You, you'll some, it'll plop out. And so people, so they make them with these sort of rounded corners. 
Uh, they're sort of a semi-rubbery, you know, like a firm rubber ball sort of consistency. And if you've ever seen a picture, a cross-section of a woman wearing an IUD, uh, and that's essentially the IUD, is it, it's not an IUD, excuse me, a diaphragm. So if you've seen yeah. a cross-section yeah. of a woman wearing a diaphragm, it sits on top of the pubic bone and then pokes back behind the cervix. That's pretty much what the, where the pessary hangs out to. It's, hmm, I've it, never heard of such a thing. Well, yeah, they're, 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 they were what we had before we had bladder surgery. And then when bladder surgery came around, we, we stopped getting trained. I was an adult grown-up doctor, and I got myself trained in pessary fitting because you know, I was coming across a, a few people who had them, and I'm like, well, I don't really know what to do with this. And uh, it's really, really very simple, and it's no harder than learning to fit diaphragms. It was really just an extension of a skill I did have. But... Uh, I've never heard of one kind of off the shelf. And I had to, mm-hmm. you know, we you purchase a, a set of about eight of them in different sizes mm-hmm. and different shapes. And, you know, then you try various things and have the person literally stand up and jump and then, you know, go sit in the waiting room and mm-hmm. drink some water and then see if they can pee at all because you don't want to make it so they have to, like, pull this thing out every time they need to pee. It's not a tampon. So... It's supposed to stay in the, up there for days and then get pulled out now and then and cleaned off. Mm, but it, yeah. So um, I would not advise buying something off the shelf. You can get fitted by a pessary for by any gynecologist. You're old mm-hmm. enough. Your Medicare will cover it. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. And indeed, that is all the time we have. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.